0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, yesterday, I, I felt like I was in the 80s again, and it was great. I uh, I got off the phone with my friend, Yakov Shmirnov, and we're working on a pilot for him. So I used to watch him do comedy in the 80s. So I talked to him, and I was like, it felt like I was in like 1985, even though I, I didn't know him then. And then me and my girlfriend, who went to college together... Graduated in the mid 80s. We got in my car to drive to Santa Monica to a friend I graduated high school with in 1982 and back in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, to watch a football game at his house. So I was sitting there the whole time going, if I just had hair and like parachute pants, I would have been back in the 80s. But then I sat there, I got back in my car, drove back, I woke up this morning bald and in boxers. So that's just the way it happens. Anyway, we have, we have a great show today. Uh, this gentleman I used to see on TV, which also is about the 80s, is Tao Pangliss. How are you doing, sir? Thank you. Yes, I got the name good. right. Tao. Tao. That's yeah. it's you know that's that's a. Uh... It's a Greek name. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, although I've seen a few German shepherds by that
0: name. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of dogs and cats named Cooper. I've noticed. Oh, really? and, and that, liking,
1: that's a good name, though. That's
0: bothering me though. Yeah. I'm like I feel bad. Yeah. So now, uh, and I, I used because we all know you from the soap opera, and just you know, this people, this guy has the ability to make people swoon. Okay, because I sent him a Twitter and. All these ladies were sending me messages. I was getting stuff. When's he going to be on your show? I mean, you have quite the following. I do. It's amazing, (laughs) but it's just it's cool. Yeah, well, you know, I I suppose you did something right,
1: you know. Um, I I think when I came uh, from Australia to uh, the United States, and I remember testing for General Hospital, and the reason the first round didn't work for me was because they never had a British-sounding actor. I mean, now we're... Mass with them. But in those days they, uh, they didn't. And I was the first um, English sounding accented person in, in daytime television. And so that really um, uh, headed the way. And then other shows came and then other actors from England and Australia came. So it was kind of the beginnings. And um, as somebody said to me on G.H., who was an Australian, uh, said to me that um, I started it all. And um, but you know, in, in those days, um, it it was uh, a little easier to do daytime. Uh, it wasn't as fast. We had rehearsals. We had directors giving us comments. But now there's very little of that. You get one rehearsal to get the lines out and walk for the cameras, and then you do the entire scene. And then when you've got you know 19 scenes that morning. Uh, you can't always do your best work. So that's why I feel sorry for younger actors who are coming on board. But those of us who've survived it and are still around, it's kind of nice. And and those ladies have certainly been around and supported me. I mean, they would really... I mean, I must say, those fans are fantastic. I mean, they just... uh, I I mean, they sent me Christmas, birthday... That must be so great. Well, it is, and it's so unexpected, but uh, very gracious. And uh, and part of it is... uh, You know, what can you give back to them? You give back to them your good work, hopefully. You give them back uh, maybe an embrace sometimes or you meet them in in person. Um, For me, it's always important when somebody comes and asks you a question who's a fan that you always treat them well. And I'm not sure people do that all the time. I've had stories about actors who who suddenly, you know, they're out of character and they're, not they're jerks. Sweet. They're jerks, you know? So we have to always watch the ego.
0: Now, when did you know you wanted to get into acting? You're, you're a kid. You know, did you, when did you really sit there? Did you see something that changed your life that said, I want to do this? Or was, did you have a family that was very supportive of the arts or how did you start this role? Especially in Australia. You're, you know, I mean, I mean, Greek there's heritage.
1: No, they were not into that, you know, um, uh, actors, cab drivers, they used to say, um, it was really by mistake. I, I was an immigration official. Um, I used to love meeting different people of different cultures, um, coming to Australia for permanent status. When I came to America to get away from the Greek uh, persona, I, um, it was really by mistake. I lived in New York. I worked in the United Nations for a year. And then somebody said, come to an acting class. Uh, the teacher said to me, get up and do a scene. And I said, oh, I'm not an actor. She said, let's see what you're about. And she said to me at the end of it, she said, you know, you're not very good. Um, which was not uh, it, was it's, upsetting. Yeah,
0: because you sit there and you're, you're going to go, I'm not really an actor. And she's going, No, yeah, you're not good. Don't no, don't but get something. up and let's show you how bad you are.
1: <laughs> yeah. And she said she couldn't d- tell the difference between me and the chair. So uh, that's how it all began. Uh, what was the incentive to continue? I mean, I remember the girl saying to me next to me, Oh, don't worry, honey, you're pretty. Um, I decided to, I I didn't want to go back home and say to the family that I failed. So I stayed away for six years and I studied really hard, met some great teachers. My 20s were about mentors. Um, I studied the arts, I studied uh, fencing, I studied voice, I studied um, um, uh, so many aspects about what you do in your 20s, which is the period of discovery and which you then apply when you start getting into your 30s. And so now when I look at it, there were no mistakes. Um, You know, I'm not sure sometimes when people say, well, did you become an actor because you wanted to or was it because it was an accident? I don't know if there are accidents or whether – I think deep down uh, I loved going to the movies because in, uh, in those days in Australia, I could dream in the dark. I could, I could visualize things that I couldn't at home because it was rather brutal, my upbringing with my father. But um, I was able to come full circle with him. And I just did a one-man show on the book Places, and um, I didn't realize the response was going to be so great. Uh, and the show was really about coming full circle. And uh, so with my father, who looked upon me as a failure, uh, I, I really won big for him. And I remember him calling me in Greek, uh, levendis, which means warrior, and tears running down his face. My mother, couldn't; she couldn't understand where I came from. Because when I see my cousins, who never really uh, did anything of much importance, um, for me, it was about... Uh, and this is what America gives you, it, it allows you to discover as you go along as to who you are, you can dream big here. Uh, I came from a society that's about the tall poppy syndrome. You don't dream big in Australia. And so... Um, that made me expand, and so by dreaming big, I expanded my vision by going overseas and seeing other cultures. So that beginning, being an immigration official, and what other cultures taught me at that time, exploring those cultures expanded my vision. So that's why I understand the Middle East and what's going on there. Um, I certainly understood my Greek heritage better because I was able to get away from it. But um, this country has been very uh, generous to me.
0: Well, so, you s- you earlier said you said you found mentors. Hmm. Who were some of your mentors? I mean, how did you choose a mentor? Um, I don't
1: know if it was – I mean, some I had to fight for. Um, in the art world, it was um, uh, uh, James Goldie and uh, Robert Ellsworth, two of the leading connoisseurs in Chinese art, English 18th century art. They were fantastic teachers, monsters, but great teachers but then mentors are monsters. I mean, that's why the, you become who you are because they really work you hard. Um, the greatest of all was Milton Casellas, who was a director on Broadway. When I met him, he was doing a, a, a show at the Lincoln Center with uh, Al Pacino and Camino Real. Um, he didn't like me uh, instantly. I had to fight to get to know him and even get to his classes. Why didn't he like? Why didn't he like you? He thought I was arrogant. He thought I. He said, "My God, you would think he owned the theatre the way his attitude is." I, know, I said, "What are you talking about?" He even called me a dilettante, and I didn't even know what the word meant. I said, "What do you mean? What about dilettante?" And then I went and looked it up, and I saw the dabbler in the arts. I thought. Is
0: own. <laughs> what an ass. <answer. laughs> <Exactly. laughs> so so you as you you as you said, you're in New York. You're really you're living your twenties. You're you know, you're absorbing everything, you're getting to the arts, you're getting to that. Yeah. So now when do you sit there and say, okay, I I know what I'm going to do? Because it seems like you're someone who knows what they're going to do and then they take that step that you don't go unpre- really unprepared to acting. When did you sit there and go, I got to go and maybe try to audition or get into TV or how did that come apart? Come about? Well,
1: I studied at eight years, partly because I had to get my papers to be able to work in this country. Chinese art, that gave me my, my work uh, papers. But, um, you know, it's not something... I, I look at other people who get breaks really quickly and then you see other people who... It takes a long time. There's something about longevity. Uh, I always think if it starts easily, it finishes fast. I think if, if you're a long-distance runner like I am and you want to be able to take that distance and still work at this stage of my life, I still am, um, it's, you plant seeds for different things. Some seeds grow and some don't. Some people embrace you, others don't. So um, wisdom of others from others uh, was one of the things that I was taught well also by making mistakes we should not look at mistakes as being mistakes we should look at them as lessons they're the obstacles that we overcome and, um, and, and so somebody once uh, said to me oh listen do you want to do a pilot I said what's that Right. I said, "It's a television. It's a potential <laughs> p- television series." I said, "Oh, what am I playing? A British soldier? Do I die? Yes. You know, I've died so many times in television. It's. I've had so many funerals." <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, and then it started to get me. It was when I did uh, a pilot with um, James Stewart, and I went onto the lot of MGM, and that's when I felt. Oh, my God, because I've seen all those MGM films when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. I suddenly went I walked onto those studios. You know, there's something about walking onto those who came before you and did it great. So when I walked through that studio, I remember uh, how nice Mr. Stewart was. It was um, a wonderful experience. Uh, and then suddenly something else came. But by the time I was 29 i thought i made a mistake i was going to go to england instead and then suddenly war came and then i get a play to go to new york i get a a movie called altered states with bill hurt uh and then the strike came so in my youth i was not lucky i had really good reviews on that that nine month straight killed whatever came out of that film um so I just persisted because I remember when I met the great actor John Gilgood when I was doing I was in the fashion world, and he said to me perseverance, and that was something you know. Sometimes you don't understand because when you're young, you don't
0: understand those words. You don't understand longevity because you don't you you, you don't, don't think about it. We we think oh wait yeah, that's it's like one thing you know. i I just turned fifty one and I'm sitting there going you know God when I was when I was. 1951 I'm like what the hell I'm I'm not gonna be dead but then I sit there and I go wow and you're right because when you're young you just think oh 30's old then when you're 30 you think 40's old and then all of a sudden you sit there once you hit 40 you go you know what? Just so life's life. You know I mean, that's just the way it is. Listen,
1: when you climb a mountain and you're 50, you're going, my. Exactly. And you're still running up those stairs two <laughs> steps at a time. You're going, wow, I, I'm still the athlete, you know? So, that, you know, it, a lot of things about you have to understand about being a long-distance runner. You've got to keep yourself healthy. You've got to also be around people. You know, there are many people that come to you that are just, um, they just suck you dry. And they let you go when they've taken what they can from you. Uh, and then it's like a piece of land that becomes barren. Um, what you end up learning, uh, not to make those mistakes again, but you know, many people have different disguises. And uh, the one thing about being an actor is you l- really learn about, about uh, instinct. You learn about how to make decisions better, smell the rat at the beginning. As we say in Greece, uh, you can't hide behind your finger. What smells in the beginning stinks in the end. Right, You know, all those things, the reason they're cliches is because they're true. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, I, I, I made sure. I did my exercising. I, I did all that. But uh, I studied hard. Um, I, I, I notice actors when I'm working uh, with them now, the young ones, they don't study as hard. They're, they've done two years of study. I mean, I've done 40 years of study now. So, and I'm still studying. I still go to workshops on Saturday morning. Um, to me, I'm I'm like a sponge. I I don't know enough, and I always go by that creed. And so, um, and the journeys that I've taken overseas is all about expanding my vision.
0: Now, you're for, you I mean, you were in a Mission Impossible that was over. Yes. No, that was in
1: that, that was in the late '80s, early '90s. But that was overseas. That was we shot. That was a Paramount Studios, and we shot it in Australia. And because we had a big strike here as those strikes used to go so they could only take certain actors with them and the rest had to cast in Australia and because I was Australian they allowed me to work in Australia with them and so um, it was uh, that's where I learned about multifaceted characters and I think that's where it's helped me in daytime is being able to play more than one character uh, by disguising through physical disguises, the voice, the walk, uh, the attitude, all those things I learned while I was doing mission. And then when I went to Days and they gave me two characters, Days of Our Lives, um, I was able to be multifaceted with those characters. And um, even on General Hospital, um, those things are at my fingertips. It's part of my, of the training that I did. And uh, I I don't want to be just uh, an actor. I wanted to be able to be able to uh, say to myself is this the best i've been and, it, and at this point, I can say, yes, it is.
0: Now, how did you end up into the soap world? I mean, after Mr. Possible, did someone say, you'd be great? I mean, it's like, it's because it's such a huge mind. Now, back then, it was much big. Ba- I mean, the soaps were huge. I huge. remember when I was a kid watching. My mom used to watch Days. or I, mean, I remember she used to watch She used to watch The Edge of Night back oh, yeah. when I was a little yeah. kid. I remember yeah. The Edge. I remember the song, oh, The yes, Edge of Night. Night. I, I still remember that. And then there was a few others. I remember there was the Somerset. There was a different ones. But how did you end up... Uh, did you, well, said- I, did,
1: uh, I had done a fil- When I did the film Slow Dancing in the Big City and the Bell Jar and then Altered States, uh, and then the strike came, the only thing that was not on strike were the soaps. So in 1981, I was called in to test for a part of, of uh, Cassadine, uh, and I didn't get it. But because they chose the actor they did who didn't turn out to be very strong, I was called back in again to be the strong brother. And so it became... A famous story. We got the biggest audience in the history of daytime. Uh, we beat most of nighttime. We were getting millions of viewers. Elizabeth Taylor came on at the time. Um, and I tested it. And I have to tell you, uh, my first day, I think I had seven scenes. I thought, how the hell do you learn all these lines? And someone advised me, one scene at a time. Don't get overwhelmed. But Gloria Monty, who is, you know, the greatest producer ever on daytime, she she made history with this show and um uh, people even used to go for lunch for a pizza in general hospital I mean that's how how many people would be watching we
0: used to, I mean we used to watch it in my in my college dorm I mean we had like six guys in a room and we and we just watched it because it was it was entertaining it was just it was fun yeah but you had rehearsals. but she, she I was buggling
1: around I couldn't remember that kind of dialogue and she came to me she says, she quieted me down she said it's okay darling just take your time. We're with you and all this. And she was very kind to me. So three months later, it was only a summer story when everybody else was killed off. The actors being, were being called into Gloria Monty, who was a killer. I mean, tough. And she called in. The guy who was playing my brother. And he came to me and he said, uh, can we swear on the uh, on the radio show? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just telling you exactly what was said. She, he said to her, uh, She says, Well, darling, thank you very much for coming. It was a a much enjoyable show. The Ice Princess was a huge story. It was Luke and Laura. And he said, But he started to cry. And he, he says, What about my fans?'" And she says, like, oh, fuck your fans. <laughs> and she, he just, he came in and he says to me, crying, you're next. So I go in and she says to me, so what's it like, darling, to be the only actor that's going to survive this whole summer storyline? I want you to come back. You'll go to jail just for a couple of months, but then we want to bring the Cassidines back. Uh, all the others had died. And then the head writer of uh, GH went to Days of Our Lives, and that's where they called me over and. Uh, They had uh, an article that says the one that got away from Gloria Monti, And uh, so what's interesting is 30 years later, I'm now back on the show. And uh, I said to him, "So what happened to him?" They said, "Oh, he went to prison." I said, "So what happened to him in prison?" They said, well, "We don't know." <laughs> and I'm going, "Oh, really?" So in my imagination, I had to imagine what is it like to be in prison. Oh, well, because I was wealthy, I'm sure I could pay off anything. Yeah, so, just watch <laughs> to I see from fellows you know, when they're a long
0: <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, when you when you were on this soap opera, did you? I mean, did you think that you would just become? You're an actor. You're a trained yeah. actor, and you're you've been working training for years and yeah. you know but did you ever think that when you were on the soap opera how big it would become like you came in for you may thought you may if you've gotten killed off if you have the cast on of killed off your career would be completely different right. what what i mean did you ever think how big i mean how like the impact that these soaps i mean the fans are, are rabid they're sort of like the star trek fans they know everything they follow you they adore you they respect you they're not the they're not the trollers on the internet they're the people that actually you know, love you guys. I mean, did you, and when you stepped into that role, did you ever think that, Oh my God, my life will never be the same. You know, at, at first for the first six weeks, and then they send
1: us out on PAs and 18,000 people would turn up. I remember my brother coming over. He gave me the barometer about what had happened. And so we go and I'm going up on stage and the fans, I think there were about 3000 in them all screaming. And my brother standing there watching. And some woman says to him, uh, how, what are you, why are you here? you a fan of his? And he says, no, it's my brother. He says, that's your brother up there? Well, they mauled my brother. They surrounded my brother. Then <laughs> used to go around. Suddenly my brother said, oh, my God. So I looked it through my brother's eyes. You know, when we got into the limousine and the women were throwing themselves <laughs> out of the limousine and screaming and everything, and my brother, George, who's a school teacher, turned around and said, You like this? (laughs) He says, where did all this come from? You were a shy boy when you were in Australia. Where did all this come from? I said, it comes with the territory. But I couldn't tell you how I would have felt about it, you know, eight months ago because I'd never experienced it before. Um, They're faithful, the fans. And I think uh, part of it is I made the guy romantic. I knew how to dance. I, I knew how to play with my voice and make it sensual at times. Uh, I knew how to dress because of the fashion world I was in in my
0: 20s. Now, did they let you um, choose your wardrobe or did, did you get to say, this is the way the guys are going to dress? Or, if someone's brought something to you, could you say, no, 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 he's not going to wear that. I mean, how did that work? Well, in the 80s, I, I came in and I said, I want to wear a tuxedo
1: with a black shirt and a black bow tie. Wardrobe came to me and says, don't be ridiculous. Nobody dresses like that. Who's ever seen? You look like you're going to a funeral. So I said, well, I am kind of dark on the show, so there's shadows. And I said, no, this is what I'm going to wear. She says, no. I said, I'm sorry, this is my character. So I fought for it. Then one day I I had a suit on with a pale blue shirt and a pink tie. I get called into the booth by the executive producer. She said, you can't wear pink tie. Men don't wear pink. (laughs) I said, well, this man does. So I started something. And then I got um, chosen best dress in 1987, I think, in 88, just before Mission. And... In my next contract, when I came back, uh, they would give me $25,000, and I would go to Rome and go shopping, and that's where i get my clothes. So I'd, I love going in stores. It was like a fairy tale. You know, you usually see women doing that. But for a man to do it, I thought, God, this is interesting. So I went into Armani, and the guy in Armani, who's very arrogant, came to me and he says, yes, can I help you with a kind of downtone, like I don't think you have a lot of money attitude? And I said, I'm looking. He says, well, call me if you need anything. So I, I didn't like his attitudes. I remember, and one of the things I remember was I called the other guy up and I said, "I want that, 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 and that. Have it sent to an NBC studios in Hollywood." It was <laughs> it was a fairy tale, you know. What I mean? It was it was an exciting kind of shtick for me, and and from then on, clothing for me as a character. Um, even at Paramount, when I did uh, Mission Impossible, uh, the executive, the big executive at Paramount called me into his office when they saw me, saw me doing shooting with the other actors. He says, where did you get that suit from? It was uh, what uh, the designer was, I remember. was Ginocchetti. And I said, oh, it's mine. He says, don't you ever do that again. I said, oh, okay. We go to Australia. I choose my own clothes, because I knew in Australia you're not going to get fashion there. And right. because of this character, I thought I want to make him a... Uh, fashion was. what took place was I'm called in again in the second season to the same producer and he says to me, Hello, Teo I thought he was going to fire me. He said, Hello, Tao. My wife loves your clothes so much. She wants you to take me
0: shopping. <laughs> so, clothing. How, how did you find, how did you find, that, was this inherent uh case like I always see some people. I mean, I I wear I, I wear t shirts when I'm in the studio, and everyone always says because I have cool t shirts, and people send me t shirts sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I try to dress nice. Mm-hmm. But how did you find like this impeccable? I mean Were you as a kid? Did you say I, I want to wear this? I mean, did were you like? Because I remember looking at pictures, and my my parents were pretty good. I mean, I remember a picture I have saddle shoes and a, a red blazer with blue shorts. And and back then, you know, no one would wear that, but it was now kids would wear it. But when when you were a kid, were you like a brat about dressing? I was. Like, and all the greek guys used to come up me and me make fun of me thinking i
1: was kind of a strange dude who wore leather pants um, uh, <laughs> su- uh, suede pants with a stripe in it man what what are you kind of that kind of attitude what are you and i remember the ignorance and the pointedness of fingers and 20 years later i go back and the same guys are wearing leather pants suede That's so pants funny. and i say to them oh <laughs> you caught up <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you just had an inherent taste. It was, you-,
1: you know, I uh, the thing I became an expert in in fashion was color coordination with Melodandre. I mean, I did Robert Redford's clothes. I did a lot of people from now, The Godfather. Let
0: me interrupt real quick. Yeah. Now, is it true that you told him he had to drop a few? <laughs> is, is, is that true? I want to hear this. <laughs> That's true. Now, how did this happen? <clears throat> you were you were doing you were in the fashion industry. I was in the
1: fashion industry, and and uh, uh, Polo uh, Ralph Lauren had just left. He'd broken up with my my boss called Roland Melodondre, and uh, he he used to say to me, listen, we get a lot of uh, celebrities. Because I walked in the store just to look at the clothing, and he says, are you looking for a job? And I went, well, maybe. And he goes, I'd like to hire you. So he saw my dress. And so one day I'm standing there. My boss is not there, and in comes Robert Redford, cold, iceberg. He says, hello, is Roland here? I said, no, closes the door. doesn't even say anything. <clears throat> he does this second time. On the third time, my boss said to me, if, if he comes in again, you have to get him to stay. That's your job. So I said, okay. So I see him coming in, and he says, is it Roland here? I said, no, he's not, but he told me, and I'm going to close the door, which I did right behind him. And he looked at me, and I said, but I have a suit that was specially made just for you. He said, really? I said, yeah. And Roland had to go and see family. So let me show it to you. If you don't like it, fine. But then nobody else will come in, so we'll have privacy. So it was a brown velvet suit with white um, um, ivory buttons. So I put the jacket on him. Now we're standing in front of the mirror. And the way we used to do it is that we would kinda of lift the armpits up of and and of, of the person wearing the jacket or the suit, and we'd go down the sides to get give them the feeling the suit feels great. Okay. And as I was going down, I came across two bumps. And I grabbed the I grabbed Robert Redford's bumps and said, um, Mr. Redford, if you want to wear this, you've got to lose that. And I remember looking in the mirror, my mouth gasped. He kinda of gasped and then he, he broke up. He broke up, actually. I don't think anybody had the audacity.
0: You got me to was... snort. That's, <laughs> that's a good one. I usually don't snort. That's, this is great. Yeah,
1: and so, uh, and I sold him the suit. And do you know what was wonderful about that experience? Ten years later, I'm at La Scala restaurant in Beverly Hills with friends from Australia, and they're saying, um, are there celebrities coming in? And Rex Harris and his wife was there, and on the other side of us was Robert Redford and... and um, um, and Paul Newman. And when Robert Redford stood up to leave, he actually came past my table to shake my hand and say 10 years later, hi, how are you? I said, I'm fine, Mr. Redford. I'm doing good. And that was it. My friends turned around to me from Australia. They said, you know Robert Redford? You know Robert Redford? I said, yes. <laughs> but they said, how do you know him? I said, oh, it's a long story.
0: <laughs> you have great stories. You wrote this book. Now, you're world trouble. Well, first of all, how did you have tea with Jackie O? Uh, it's funny how
1: People always love that story. No, because I saw it. And I was like, <laughs> it just
0: puts it so, Jackie, like when you're, you know, just an icon. Yeah. I mean, so just to have tea, it just seems like, like, how did that happen?
1: My boss had come in, Robert Ellsworth, who was so nasty. Um, he had me study every day, he said to me, in six months, there's a shipment coming in, and you have to appraise it. I want to see how, how, how you take in knowledge. And it was a, an English uh, 18th century shipment. And uh, he brought in Claudette Colbert. And Claude Colbert wanted two paintings, the Eutrio Monet, to be copied. They took those, uh, He took those paintings and took it to some experts to to copy them because you know, climate in Barbados was ruining the paintings. So she said to Bob, um, Oh, Bob, why don't you ask Tia for lunch? She's so pretty. And he said, No. I said, oh, I'd love to, because it was my first movie star that I ever met. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, maybe things are changing. So uh, <coughs> he said no. So they left. So I'm sitting there sulking, and suddenly there's a knock on the door. Now, it was only by appointment only. And we usually only got private collectors or museum people. And as I opened the door, there stood Jacqueline Kennedy and her two bodyguards. And she says, I'm terribly sorry. Here I was, an apprentice, making $75 a week. I'm terribly sorry. She said, I I haven't made an appointment, but I've heard so much about this gallery. Can I see see the artwork? And I said, oh, absolutely. And I closed the door. She told them the bodyguards to wait outside. And I came by, and she came by, and I said, would you like some tea? I, I mean, you don't do that usually. But she was, you know, to see... The, the, yeah, of course. You know. yeah, it's the- <laughs> history in front of you. Exactly. And I said to her, would you like some tea? And she said, yes. And I went, how do you take your tea? And she said, oh, just with a little milk, thank you. So I call up Masahiro, the houseman houseman upstairs, and I said, Masahiro, uh, could you bring down tea for two? And he says, oh, please, you are an ask for tea. You're an apprentice. I said, no, there's someone very important here. And he goes, nah, laughs in my face on the phone. Suddenly he comes down in his shorts. Usually he's in his outfit. He comes down in his shorts. As the door opens, Jacqueline Kennedy's going by, and he goes, oh, <laughs> Closes the door, goes back upstairs. I take her in the back. It was the best collection of Southeast Asian sculpture in America. It was three stories, New York. The, the whole ceiling was glass, so it looked like a tomb. She couldn't get over, over it. She thought it was stunning. So I opened this long curtain and I asked her to sit down and she says, tell me about the pieces. Now, I knew every piece. I knew the price. I knew where it came from. It's history. I told her that the spirit of the artist always is with the, with the piece. And I remember describing the pieces when, Mal- when Masahiro came in with the silver tray with all the good china and everything and with biscuits. And, and we sat for an hour and then she asked me about my Greek culture. She wanted to know about the Greek culture. And little did I know that three weeks later she was going to marry Onassis. And, of course, you know, friends of mine would say to me, oh, you know, that's why she came to the gallery. She wanted to see what another Greek was like before she made, She said yes. So <laughs> that was my thing. So I had a whole, whole hour with her. And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're brought up well, we don't have that as much anymore. We don't have boundaries. People are always smashing boundaries. Uh, Young kids don't know how to speak to adults. They don't realize that there are reasons why there's a decade and a decade and a decade. All those are part of your transition. And um, thank God I was brought up in a certain way because um, I was able to address her and also because of my passion for knowledge. And so it was just, you know, it was a fantastic experience.
0: It's funny you say about kids, yeah, because me growing up, we called everyone Mr. Even my aunt, my Aunt Ruth. I mean, I could be... 30 and I would still call my aunt Ruth. I mean it's yeah. just a different time. Now I see kids sometimes I see kids I'm out and I go what you know what the hell? I mean it, it have some manners. So now now you travel a lot. Yes. Now now how did did you, to, did you always want to did you always want to travel when you were younger or when did you really start traveling? And you take a lot of pictures when you travel, right? I do. I mean, you know, you come to a moment you've got you don't
1: uh, there's a big difference in having a photograph of something to describe it to friends. And just talking about it. And, uh, you know, my first journey was the 26th was Egypt. I Camera in and, hand? Yes. You had your camera? Your- I had my camera in hand, but the first time I went was at midnight, and uh, you're not supposed to be in that area then. There was no boundaries that you could have to, that were closed like there are today. But I remember running straight up to the pyramids and Cheops and looking up at that pyramid with the full moon and, just thinking, oh, my God, look at this colossus built in four centuries ago and uh, 4,000 years ago. And before I knew it, five men and just grabbed me and started to drag me into the pyramids. And anyway, make a long story short, I escaped from them. And um, I remember it was a scary time, but I, there was something so fulfilling. You know, there are some places you go to that resonate. And there are those places you go to and you're going, yeah, it's okay. But those that resonate you know you realize this history that you're connected in some way and so i've been to egypt now 10 times
0: what keeps bringing you back do you do you find different places like do you go to do you just explore when you go like you know a lot of people travel they go okay i'm gonna go to egypt yeah. and they'll go to the main city now you've done that you've been there back do you go to small little cities do you get do you find out from yeah, well, locals first, you know when
1: people take journeys a lot of them come back and after two weeks they forget about it i don't um I love going to ancient villages. I like to see the basicness of a, of a life form, not those that are on the street. That can I want to see what is the real life. You know, It's like going to the poor areas of the United States. Mm-hmm. You get to understand the culture better and the people, and, and they're very grounded, and, and they speak their truth. You know, they haven't learned to camouflage and pretend and give you all the bullshit that people in success do. Um, like I went to a village... And I remember going into in Luxor, and <coughs> my uh, the guy who drove the felucca boat said to me, "I'd love you to come to my see my family." And I remember, like Greeks, you know, you can't go to a house without taking sweets or something to give. And I remember going in, and there was the father with his children, mm-hmm. the wife was with her wearing her headdress and everything, and she she was in the other room. She didn't want to be. She's not allowed to be seen with them. But he said to me, he said to me. A really interesting thing he said I, I looked at him and I said do you speak English no I said I, the translator I apologize that I didn't bring sweets to the house will money be okay if I can give you as a gift some money and he nodded and I remember I gave him $50 now that's like four months salary right when I gave him that $50 it's not like here where we would l- open and see what we were given he just took the money and put it in his pocket very graciously and I thought wow look at that and he said, thank you. So I went to other villages and I gave them monies because they, that's what they need the most. I mean, I, I support a family over
0: there. Every quarter I send money. How did, you, how did that happen? How did that come about that you found this family? and how, you, know? you know, you can't always trust the
1: Arab when you go over because they're after your money. They think, okay, he's an American, he's coming over, and how do we get the money from them? So they try to seduce you in different ways. And you've also got secret police. And, you know, I've been... They've tried to entrap me over there because if they entrap you in anything, like try to sell you coins sexually or whatever it is, they know that at the end of it, they can throw you in prison and can ask for $15,000, which is the latest amount of money. that That's how they release you. But I, I went... Uh, I I found my felucca guy who was rowing the felucca because the motor broke, and um, he he was the one who I found the, the honest one, who was consistently gracious when I gave him a tip, or he would make sure he met me at the airport. He was also clever, but he would meet me at the airport, make sure I was comfortable at my hotel. So that kind of person. I've got two terrific guides, one's an archaeologist. So when I go to Egypt, I don't arrive at the airport getting into a cab because they can take you anyway. Right. and especially today. I have my friends meet me. That way I know I'm safe. And when I come out of my hotel, my friends are picking me up. The one thing I don't do with them is to go and eat their food because um, the water in the Nile is dirty. And there are just too many problems, stomach problems. So I always eat at the hotel, but I meet them later for a drink or something or take a ride on the felucca, or take a car ride to a new site that they've discovered. But, you know, that's how I built the same way when I was in Syria, the same way when I was in Morocco. I always make sure there is somebody that I meet. And if they're worthwhile, I, I stay connected.
0: Well, you said Syria. You were in Syria back when it was just beautiful. 2010. And so, and now that was just something, how did you choose Syria to visit? Well, you know, I, I had just become an American citizen. Um,
1: Obama was running. And I thought, wow, a black man is going to become president, I hope, of the United States, which was history. And I said, you know, I want to be an American. America is what um, resonates with me in my life. And so I wanted to vote. I didn't like watching other people vote, and I couldn't have an opinion. So I, vote for him. I voted for him. And um, I went to Syria, and I thought, I wonder what it would be like to go with an American passport, because I'd never gone. It was always with the Australian
0: passport. So, yeah, everywhere you have traveled before, and it's, a, sure, a different, right. I mean, you have an accent and everything, and that's fine, but when it comes to the passport, passport, there's a different feeling. So that must have been very interesting.
1: Well, they saw that I was American. They kept me waiting for over an hour. And okay. then when they called me over, they're just staring me up and down, three of them, with, with disdain. So I said to them, um, it's a passport. I gave him my passport, and it's like this, and they said, what are you doing here? Why would you be coming to our country? I said, uh, to, to study your history. He says, what history? I said, the one before you. The one before me? I said, yes. I said, the Arab invasion was in the 7th century. The history before that was the Greeks, the Christians. The yes, that's why I came. He throws the passport in my face, spits on the side. And I said, oh, thank you. Most welcome, I said. So I, I w- g- got through, and I thought, oh, my God, and now I'm in Syria. I wanted to go and see the great castle of the Crusaders. It's the greatest, biggest castle in the world, and the Christians built it in the 12th century to make sure that the that the Muslims knew that the Christians were there to stay. So I went to all these Damascus. You know, I'm standing on a mound looking over Damascus, and I'm looking down at the city. I'm sitting on, standing on this mound, and I look at the guide, and I said, well I suppose there's some because Damascus is the the you know oldest city inhabited through history so I said well I suppose this mound's important too and he says oh yeah this is where Cain and Abel fought so I'm standing at a place without even realizing it and there's an ancient piece of history so that's what makes it so amazing when you go to these regions so much you know all the Mesopotamia area and then uh, I went to the castles which was great I went to Palmyra which was great now, uh, there was a thing on the internet the other day, which is what ISIS and, and, uh, and, and the rebels have been bombing. Uh, they bombed the castle that has been in existence for, what, over a thousand years. They bombed the tower. I remember at that tower, there was a sign that said, Richard the Lionhearted just like all those movies you see. Right. Right? The impenetrable uh, castle. Um, uh, D, uh, T. Lawrence, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, he tried to climb that, those walls. He only could reach halfway. Salah Hadim, which was the greatest warrior and the second most important man in the Muslim world next to Muhammad, he tried to conquer it and couldn't get through. So here you are. And that night they're playing orchestral music, uh, music by the orchestra in classical music. And you think of that bloody history. And I didn't realize that, you know, two years later, all this was going to get bombed. I go to Malula, which is the the most ancient Christian city that still speaks Aramaic, the same as the language of Christ. And I go there. And they were so wonderful, those people. I mean, so gentle. They went in there and bombed there. So, you know, a lot of these, I mean, when you think about it, that they've existed this long and it's taken these stupid assholes who have no sense of... Any heritage
0: or history or anything, or yes. anything,
1: anything, and don't even think of, because they see anything that has an image to it is against their religion. And if they really read the Quran and see what Muhammad had said in the Quran, that information passed on to him is that not to judge other people, to accept each person with the way they 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 reach their God. I mean, to them, it's Allah, but it's the same God, and uh, he, they just. You, 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 it's dumbfounding it's sad because when you 've seen it it's even worse because you know it's no longer in existence they've they 've just blown up so much that and Syria and why because they 've got that that leader
0: now does uh, it depress you when like when you choose a place to travel now hmm. does it do you sit there and think, do you foresee that something might happen because you know we can we can see you know you can tell me about. The, the castle and this falling down and it's sad. But when you actually have seen it in its beauty and then you hear about it, it must be a little crushing just because especially oh. for you, your world traveler who takes pictures to tell more than a story. It does, I mean, it must when you know well, they will her
1: heritage sites that's why they call it world heritage it it belongs to the world it's not just their country right. the same with with greece and the acropolis it's world heritage it's for us to go and enjoy how that history if we don't have history to remind us how great things were done how are we going to understand what we're doing now it's it's all part of the pattern and even with the with the the british who stole at the turn of the um, the 19th century the beginning of the 19th century they stole the, F, the parthenon Marbles, which they call the Elgin Marbles, because it was Lord Elgin, because the Ottomans, uh, who had invaded Greece for three hundred and fifty years, just pulled them down, and the British bought them from him and put them in their museum. The Greeks have been trying to get these back for centuries, and they, they, they're so insulting. They don't understand that when you look at a piece of art like that, that culture, the reason what all these figures that are that are now in the british museum they tell a story it's an expression of democracy this is the country that started democracy it's an expression of democracy and when you take that expression away and what you look at is you look at it and you say well that's a great building but what does it mean the, the the pieces told the story and why should it be in another culture that had nothing to do with that so when you look at the 19th century, the biggest looters of the world were the British, the, the French, and the Germans. And if you go to their museums, it's full of foreign culture. When you go to museums in China, when you go to museums in Italy, when you go to museums in Greece, it's, none of these countries have other pieces that belong to another culture. I mean, Italy has Greek because Italy and Greece were you know, together at that time. But that's their expression. That's the purity of that. And somebody was saying to me, I remember it was an American who said to me when I was watching, I was in the British Museum and I was looking at the uh, uh, the, mar- the Parthenon marbles and he said to me, oh, it's a good thing they stayed here. I said, yeah, but do you know that in 1938, the British thought, one a curator said, oh my God, they're looking dull, let's clean them. And they used a a, a mm-hmm. chemical that entered, because they're marble is porous and it entered and started to eat away at the, at the marble and then what he had taken up was the original patina and then he, I said to him, so how would you like if someone took the Statue of Liberty, if America had been conquered and the Statue of Liberty was dragged across to some Middle Eastern country, would you like to go there and visit that and say I mean that the Statue of Liberty is about freedom it's about the American, American history right. at, at its best would you like to go over there and visit that? How do you feel that it's no longer in those waters, and you're going overseas to see it in the museum? And you'd say to yourself, "So, what was that meant to be?" Right. If it's not its original premise, it was built for that reason to show freedom. Where when you pass through, it, you're going to a country of democracy, of independence, and um, a country where you be, can become. So, you know, I'm all for. I don't like. I mean, even when you go to Egypt, Egypt has Egyptian art. It doesn't have Chinese. it Doesn't have anything stolen. So these cultures who, who didn't have a classical age, the British, which were the worst offenders, we were terrible in the 20, 20th century, the Americans. You go to the museums, and and, and a lot of those things were stolen.
0: Snow, so you have a book. Mm. Now, what made you decide to put, because it was just because you've had so many great travels and your photography and just this very uh, great life. Uh, did you, How did you come about? How did you decide to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to put this... I mean, did someone say to you, hey, man, you should write a book? Or did you say, hey, you know what? I've seen a lot. I have stories. I have photographs. I called Robert Redford chunky. I mean, how, how did you come up with the idea to put your book together?
1: I met a producer in New York who said to me, um, listen, I want you to meet some people at Discovery. And um, I know you've traveled a lot. So could you give me eight stories? So I did eight short stories in two weeks. I then went to Syria. I shot myself in Syria. Had someone shoot me, photographically, and put this this three-minute piece together. And so we went. And Discovery loved it. They were ready. So they called my agent. And they said, yeah, "Can you start in two weeks?" And um, the st- it was going to be about uncovering mysteries. That I had gone and discovered, just like I took. Oh, you're a big fan of that. Do you love I, finding? I love those things. I mean, I even I went when I went to Egypt one year. I went up and down the Nile for two weeks, going to areas where the Holy Family had escaped from Herod into Egypt. And I went to those places where the monasteries are, where the sacred wells are, eight of them, where miracles have taken place. And um, even in 1968, um, this incredible vision came on top of a church of the Virgin Mary for three months she came every night so you know I was interested in that so I went I went to uh, Discovery and they said let's start in two weeks and this is the ideas we're going to do let's start with iconic stories and, uh, and then suddenly I get a phone call from my agent some guy from National Ge- Geographic came in and he said no I'm going to wipe the slate clean I'm going to do my own shows and so that's how it went so I'm, I've got these stories and I went what am I going to do with these stories? And I thought, well, I did. So I started to write them. It Gave me something to do in between jobs, and I started to write. Amazing the memory. I started to travel in my mind when I didn't take because every year, twice a year, I'd take journeys. Now I was taking a journey in my mind, and it was amazing the, the conversation that would come through because I tapped into the source, and that's how it. That's how I wrote those stories. And then I, someone had read some of the stories, said this should be a book, and so I met my first publisher, uh, Judy Proffer, and um, she loved the idea. And then she said, something's missing when she read my stories. I said, well, she said, I don't know where you came from and how you took these journeys. So that's where the stories of Jacqueline Kennedy, Robert Redford, John Gilgood, Lillian Gish, all those stories came from going back and writing a chapter along the path, which allowed the reader to know that before they went into the journeys they took, the journey to America also was part of that history.
0: all right? Yeah, a little cough there. You know, tell me some other good stuff. I love your stories. I want to hear some stories. But I want to interrupt real quick. I was reading that you, you do theater occasionally. Yes. Now, I believe you did a show in Cape May. Oh, yeah. I used to go. I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Uh-huh. I used to go in college. And actually, I was there. Me and my girlfriend went two summers ago to Stone Harbor, which is right near Cape May. Uh-huh. How did you end up in Cape May? Isn't it beautiful there? Beautiful. And and full of Republicans is it? Yeah, well, of course that's yeah. Well, so is Stone Harbor. It's, and, it's, it's, as you get. and
1: they were great, you know, because I'm a Democrat, and so you know, uh, I don't know why people think you're enemies, you know.
0: You know, it's funny. I think I always say this because I grew up. My dad was a Republican. My mom was a Democrat, and um, they got along. They were married for years. For me, and I think most people, we're. Most people are just right in the middle. We just have certain views this way, certain views that way. Hmm. But then we all see all these buffoons who are the hardcore right and the overly hardcore left. And then everyone thinks, you guys hate each other because the media says they hate each other. But you're right. Most people, if you're out watching a play or getting dinner, I always learn, don't talk politics. I go to a bar in Burbank and these two people are arguing about politics. And I'm like, they go, what do you think? I said, I'm I'm sitting down the other end because I'm here to have a drink and to relax. Hmm. So- um, How would you end with Cape May? You know, it was um,
1: uh, Roy who was uh, one of the directors and producer on Days of Our Lives. After about three years, he was let go, and he was a the theatre man, and he was offered a job to take over the Cape May Theatre. In uh, and uh, I, so he said to me, "Would you be interested in coming?" Because I always had a good relationship with him, and he knew I did theatre. I said, "Sure." New play came up called Class. It's about a teacher, acting teacher, where a, a young star comes in and wants to be taught. It's a tragic kind of play, but it's, it's about how uh, people learn their lessons, that, and, and the young person teaches the, uh, the, the teacher a great lesson about life. Um, and so Roy uh, said, Steinberg, he said, uh, so um, you know, two-part play, a uh, two-character play, that meant a lot of dialogue. So anyway, I was prepared by the time I went there I was prepared. And and um so he heard about my stories because he knew the journeys I was taking. and he said to me, "Listen, on a Monday night, do you want to do do you want to do a theater of telling your stories?" And I said, "Oh, really?" He is is said, it's Monday day off and he goes, "No, it'd be great." We can get some people in and talk about it. Anyway, we filled the house, and I did it for the first time. I talked about these stories.
0: Were you prepared? Did you write them all out, or do you have them all in your head that you just know because you talk to people? So basically, you just went up there and and sort of winged it. I mean, I'm sure you had the idea. Well, you know, in,
1: in, in ancient times, during the illiterate times, I'm talking around the 8th century B.C., you know, you had Homer who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Well, people would just listen to stories. Icons were developed for the Christians, so that the message, because they couldn't read scripture, they saw the message on the icon, and that's what why icons were expressed that way. Um, I, I, I found myself, I thought, can I do this? And I just gave a list of the stories I would tell. I just went through my mind. I took the pictures off my site, I gave it to the stage manager. He had them in line. We did this overnight. And I come out on the stage, full house.
0: Which you probably weren't expecting. Not expecting. Did that get you a little nervous? Because uh, it, it did, was your but first I, time. It I said,
1: you know what? Keep the lights on. I don't want to do this in the dark. I want to see people's faces. I want to see if I've got them. If I haven't got them, I have to, you know, you have to learn your tricks. But I had them. I mean, I came out. They were so eager. And this was Kate May. Kate May. They were so eager because, you know... There's not a lot of theater there. There's not a lot of change. You know, you've got your lovely ocean. It's the bars, ocean, and pizza, and fudge. So you bring a little culture, foreign culture, and about experiences that were dangerous. You know, I told them about Mossad surrounding me in Tel Aviv thinking I was was a terrorist. Um, I, I was pulled out of a car by Hezbollah in the southern part of Lebanon thinking I was an Israeli spy. I had secret police following me everywhere in Egypt and in Syria. So I would tell them these stories. But it's in the way you tell a story. I mean, some people can tell a story, and you're going, uh-huh, uh uh-huh. when's this finishing? When are you going to finish the story? So what it is, it is the fuel of, of one's spirit. It is the It is the passion. It's how passionate you are about how you tell a story. Because when there's passion, it means you're alive, and if you're alive, people are listening. And you don't drop it. You keep it going, you keep it going, but you also know how to... Pick it up and drop it, you know. You have to also have, be able to come in with a line and, you know, it's like when they drag me into the pyramids, I said, next time I'm going to take a guide, right. you know. Or when I said to them, so, the next day I took an acid trip on a camel. You it's, know, it's the unexpected it's the, it's, as well. And it's
0: the showmanship. It and comes showmanship. in that you add that, that yeah. power to so it. So
1: I became what I felt like the ancient orators, we were able to tell stories that then continued on through the centuries until that literary age in the 6th century became where someone brought about the writing and expression of what stories were being told. So um, now they're talking about, I should go on the lecture circuit with these stories because a lot of people are not going to go to Syria. A lot of people are not going to go to Egypt. They're too scared. So if so- in some way they can find something about that that they can identify with, then they'll listen.
0: Now, did you only do that once in Cape May, or did you start doing it more often?
1: No, I just did that once. It was and just did, that experience. And then, you know...
0: Uh, don't I, you miss that? Because, I mean, it's like... Was that the only time you've told the stories? No, I told them uh, a month ago. Okay. At, in Beverly Hills Playhouse. I did one night. We had to
1: turn people away, pack the house. We had to put extra seats around. And I remember coming down, and there is a poem by Cavafy called Ithaca. And and Cavafy was a poet from Alexandria. He died in 1932. But in 1901, he wrote Ithaca. And even Jacqueline Kennedy, when she died, wanted this poem recited at a funeral. And it's about the journey of the soul. So I, I came out down those stairs and I thought to myself, if you can't do this now... You're never going to be able to do it because I knew there were a lot of professional people in the audience. So I came down those stairs and as I opened my mouth, there was this huge applause and I was thrown. I wasn't expecting it. I thought it was going to be one of those lovely, quiet, respectful, you know. No, it was loud and I couldn't even get the poem out. (laughs) And I just stared at them and I looked at them and I said, you know, you just ruined my opening. And they started to laugh, and I knew I had them. You have to know your audience, and I knew I had them. So when I'm starting to tell these stories, I didn't. People said to me later, I didn't know you were so funny. So depending on how the audience responded, timing of things, you know, would come out before you. I couldn't even tell you what I said because I was in the moment. And so after an hour 15, and I finished, they all stood up screaming, and I went, God, from Cape May to this, what a difference confidence played a big game plus my stories after having written them have a bigger life to them and so um now i'm i'm looking at i'm thinking great i mean i'm i'm preparing a new book now and um it's
0: going to be on cooking Yeah, okay, that's so cool, because it's something different. I'm working on a cookbook, too, Ah. but uh, but, um, I'm sure our cooking is a lot different. Mine's for low sodium, because I have a certain condition, Ah. but yours, I'm sure, is very... Are you a good cook? Excellent. Okay, now, (laughs) now, how did you learn to cook through the years, or was it when you were a kid?
1: Now, when I was working at the United Nations, I used to be invited by the uh, different consuls for dinner, and I was a young guy, and I used to ask them if I could go in the kitchen and watch the chefs, and that's how I began to learn about
0: food. That's so cool. We only have a few minutes left. Yeah, This, is, this has been a great guy. You're, you're just an entertaining guy. I am. <laughs> I, mean, I know. Just you have so many good stories. And, and I love stories. I'm a storyteller. People always say, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's something. And it's true. So many people can't tell the story. Because you, know you know exactly when people are telling a story and you're like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. uh uh-huh. uh-huh, yeah. So now what's next for you? I mean, are you, do you, you should do these shows more often. I'm sure they'd be great. Yeah, um,
1: the director who looked at this, I mean, I brought the stories to her, Terry Hanauer. She was just wonderful, and she would say to me, well, we had three rehearsals only, and she would say to me, no, no, get rid of that story. It's going on too long. So she was a barometer, and uh, I said, okay. Uh, we did, I mean, I wa- there are certain stories I didn't tell that I love, you know, and she, so now I'm waiting to hear about... Uh, a job that I can't talk about now because I'd give away something. Um, I've Been doing the uh, the work. This morning I went in for four voiceovers. Um, one for a, um, for a major film in uh, DreamWorks. Um, so I'm, you know, this was a time where I was going to. And this is why I want to say to people, you know, there comes a time when you say, you know what, I'm going to retire. I think it's enough. I've done enough of this business. And I thought, but is this is this the big the big moment, Is this, where it, this is it, this is it. And so as I look back at my life, I didn't realize I mean, I'm in my, my last, um, what is the word, the last uh, renaissance. And I thought, is this, when you say a renaissance, is this going to be the best time because of all this knowledge? Because as Bill Maher said recently, listen you assholes, the reason why you're young is because you don't know anything. And you, who are so afraid about getting older, wisdom is part of that payment of having lived this long so the wisdom that's come from the knowledge that i have attained through the years of experience and i'm realizing i don't because you know how we are in this country it's all about the youth and uh it's so wrong it's so wrong for so many reasons because you're not great until later and and i don't want to i don't
0: want to lose that you won't you just got to tell those stories though. i mean you're you you've you sold out one night. How many? How many people sell out and they're screaming as you come down? You should be sitting there going, "I." You should do two or three nights. Or you, it'd be great. Mm-hmm. People, people want entertainment. People are tired of movies that are just explosions. People, you know, are tired of pretentious plays. You know that are are about you know, hipster generation. People just want to be people just want to hear stories and that's well what what
1: I think what you know because you're right about plays sometimes you say oh how long is this going on till you know you're not sometimes it's very difficult to really get into a play the thing about the show that I did called places is that it's instant right it's fast it's short stories it's people's attention span so maybe they're about to lose attention when you hit them with another story they're awake again it's like a slap in the face and you give them another one and just it's like comedy you know you when no to come into your next line, just as the, the the applause is dying down or the laughter is dying down, you come in for the next, so it's the same way. Well, I
0: want to thank you. Uh, now, now your book you can find your book on Amazon, yeah, it, right? It's called Places, and now you have that book, and yeah. uh, and, and it's it's it do, are, are you getting good reviews on it? I got great reviews. The the uh, the review, the I'm waiting for the New York Times, uh, but the review
1: that came out from uh, Publishers Weekly gave it a rave, they said buy it, so cool. that was good. And you tweet. Oh, yeah, I've tweeted, you know, I tweet about the stories. I'll show a photograph and tell them about, do a little excerpt from when I went to the Hippodrome in, in, in uh, Lebanon, southern Lebanon, where the great chariot races took place. And then I'll give them a little story about that. And this is, this is a quote from place. And what's your website address? My website
0: is um. People, just so you know, it's spelled T-H-A-A-O-P-E-N-G-H-L-I-S.
1: That's that's my Facebook page. Also on Twitter, it's uh, at Teo Penglis. And um, so, you know, it's uh, before the next book comes out, you know, I want to – it's a good book. I'm really pleased with it. I think when people have read it, they think that, that
0: I took them. On the journey with That's me. Amazing. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you. This is great. I really thank enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, get his book. People follow him on Twitter. Also follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk at Cooper Talk. I try to tweet a lot of jokes. Go to my website, Coopertalk.net. I have over three hundred and ten episodes up there with some uh, really great, interesting guests. If you go to iTunes or Stitcher, type in Cooper Talk one word. That way you can hear it through those processes, all my same uh, episodes. Also, if you have an Android uh, device, go to the Google Play Store, type in Cooper Talk. I have an app. You can listen to all my shows. are up there. Send me an email, cooper at coopertalk.net. And that's about it. I just want to keep you guys, uh, keep listening. I always try to get great guests. And yeah, and follow Tao and just uh, go buy his book buy that book because if, if you like these stories I'm sure there's a lot more in the book oh uh, yeah um, yeah very human stories I want to thank you people thank thanks you. for listening I'm Steve Cooper I'm only as hip as my guest don't forget drink your water eat your vegetables take your vitamins you guys have a great day that's all